John chapter 6. John chapter 6. She's excited about John chapter 6. John chapter 6, beginning in verse 48. Our Lord speaking here. He said, I am the bread of life. Your fathers did eat manna in the wilderness and are dead. This is the bread which cometh down from heaven that a man may eat thereof and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If any man eat of this bread, he shall live forever. And the bread that I will give him is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. The Jews therefore strove amongst themselves. It's the first time they did that. Saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? Then Jesus said unto them, verily, verily, I say unto you, except ye eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, ye have no life in you. Whoso, uh, whoso eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood hath eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is meat indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He that eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood dwelleth in me, and I in him. As the Father hath sent me, and I live by the Father, so he that eateth me, even he shall live by me. Amazing. This is that bread which came down from heaven. Not as your fathers did eat manna and are dead. He that eateth this bread shall live forever. These things said he in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. Many, therefore, of his disciples, when they heard this, said, This is an hard saying. Who can hear it? When Jesus knew in himself that his disciples murmured at it, he said unto them, Doth this offend you? What and if ye shall see the Son of Man ascend up where he was before? It is the Spirit that quickeneth, the flesh profiteth nothing. The words that I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life. But there are some of you that believe not. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were that believed not and who should betray him. And he said, Therefore said I unto you that no man can come unto me except it were given unto him of my Father. What an amazing passage of Scripture. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, Lord, we pray that your Holy Spirit would give us enlightenment and understanding in this great mystery of which Christ himself speaks. Father, we're talking about the things of eternity. We're talking about eternal life. We're talking about the mystical union between Christ and his believers. We're talking about partaking of Christ. For, Father, if we do, know, do not partake of Christ, we shall die in our sins. Father, I pray that you would open our hearts and our minds I pray as your children that you'd comfort us and strengthen us, encourage us. I pray that, Father, after today that our praise and worship of thee would be greatly inspired. And, Father, I pray that in that inspiration and through that that we would seek to glorify Christ even more in our daily lives. And, Father, I pray that most of all that Christ would be honored and glorified in our midst this day. 
forgive us already for our ignorance and our inability to understand the things of the Spirit of God. Help us, we pray, that we might glorify Thee. Give us, Lord, we pray, an understanding. Guide us now, Spirit of truth, we pray, for we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen and amen. It was the psalmist in Psalm 139, verse 6, who said, Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain unto it. And every time we approach the Word of God, I pray that that would be our humble spirit as God's people, that we'd approach it with humility and reverence, and that God would be pleased to show us truths out of His words. And we have such a truth here in John chapter 6, which is overwhelming. And without the Spirit of God, we too shall not comprehend its depth nor its blessings. When you consider the people that was around Christ at that time and how many rejected or refused or did not see or did not believe, it's amazing that Christ would grant us this day understanding and enlightenment in such divine truths as he speaks of here in John chapter 6. The psalmist also said in Psalm 40, Many, O Lord my God, are thy wonderful works which thou hast done, and thy thoughts which are to us word, he said. They cannot be reckoned up. That means they cannot be arranged. They cannot be put in order. If I would declare and speak of them, they are more than can be numbered. And I believe the psalmist is not speaking about physical blessings that God gives us in this present life. I believe he's speaking of the spiritual blessings that we have in Christ. We have not even come close to attain nor apprehend what we all have in Christ. Paul himself expresses it in Philippians when he says, I have not yet apprehended. I've not yet truly, totally, wholly conceived what all I have in Christ and what Christ has given us in His wonderful salvation. So it is in this sixth chapter of the Gospel of John, for herein we find the wonderful works of God and His thoughts to us word. For though Christ replies to the murmuring Jews, Beloved, it is to his own people that he speaks. For Christ knew, in verse 64, he knew who would, from the beginning, who were, who would believe and who would betray him. Our Lord is not wasting his breath on the Jews, nor on the apostate disciples. Beloved, our Lord is speaking through their, through them, or through his reply to them, to us, about his glorious salvation. Hi. <laughs> Love that verse in Romans chapter 9, verses 22 and 24, where it says, For what if God, willing to show His wrath and to make His power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction, these Jews and apostate disciples? Why? That He might make known the riches of His glory on the vessels of mercy which he had afore prepared unto glory. Even us, Paul said, whom he hath called. Oh, the Word of God is such an amazing 
amazing and wonderful thing for the child of God, how God would use situations such as this in chapter 6 with the feeding of the 5,000 of the Jews and the apostate disciples, how he would use such circumstances to speak to you and I. He's not wasting his breath on someone who has no interest in him, who will not believe in him, and who betrays him. Christ is speaking to his own. So let me begin with this simple yet very solemn question. Do you know of what Christ speaks in chapter 6? Have you truly partaken of Christ? I didn't say have you learned of him. I said, have you partaken of Christ? Do you know Christ? Does He dwell in you? And you in Him? Do you know of what Christ speaks? Having declared unto the uh, Jews that no man can come to Christ except the Father which sent Him, Important to remember. Draw him, and that every man, therefore, that hath heard and hath learned of the Father, Christ said, cometh unto him. Christ would now declare that a mere external profession of faith is not sufficient proof or evidence that the Father has drawn one to Christ. This is vitally important for us to understand. Christ is saying, beginning in verse 48, I've told you a divine truth. You cannot come unto me unless the Father draw you. You cannot come unto me unless the Father has taught you. And if He has taught you, you shall partake of me. But merely to profess that outwardly the Father has drawn you does not mean that you're saved. It's not sufficient. Beloved, this is so important, especially in this day and age of knowledge in which we live in. I'm telling you, we, we live in a generation where knowledge of Scripture has in every generation, but more so now because we have so much on our fingertips. You can go on the Internet and order any book you desire on any topic of our Christian faith. You can order from the Puritans, Reformers, to modern day, and men, when they get a hold of such knowledge, often it does not help but hinder them to come to Christ. Man still has a sinful proneness to exalt his knowledge and understanding of Scripture. And Christ is saying here, yes, the Father must draw you. Yes, He must teach you. But, but an outward and external perfection of faith is not sufficient. If you do not partake of me, you know nothing of the drawing of the Father. And beloved, there are many people sitting in churches this morning that will profess with their mouth that Christ, that Father has drawn them, yet they know nothing of Christ, nothing of partaking of Him. They know nothing of unity with Christ, and yet they'll profess they know the Father has drawn them. Christ said that is impossible. Sometimes we ourselves are guilty of giving sinful man the impression that it merely takes an outward profession. We'll isolate scriptures. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Without 
bringing in the context of that. Beloved, it's much more than that one verse involved in that divine truth. And sometimes we make the sinner believe it's a simple external perfection. Salvation is much more than that. And Christ is defining it here in chapter 6. It's a divine work. It's a sovereign work of God. A sovereign work of grace that draws you to me. But it must draw you to partake of me. Otherwise, it is nothing but a vain and outward and countless and pointless profession. There must be an actual partaking of Christ. And I believe this is what's missing in so many gospel so many gospels preached today, if you want to call it that, there's that urgent need if you've got to partake of Christ. It's much more than simply saying a prayer. It's much more than simply convincing yourself that Christ is a Savior. You have to partake of Christ. You have to partake of Him. Verse 53, verily, verily, Look what he says in verse, look what they say in verse 52. The Jews therefore strove among themselves, saying, How can this man give us this, his flesh to eat? Then Jesus said unto them, and when he says, Verily, verily, this is significant. Every time Christ said that in the Gospels, Verily, verily, I'm telling you, he's stressing the point. I say unto you, except, just like he said earlier, except the Father draw you. Now he says, Except you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Well, Christ, you just said earlier that the Father's got to draw us, the Father's got to teach us. Is that not sufficient of itself? Christ would say, the drawing of the Father is that you might partake of me. Simply acknowledging that divine point, that divine fact, does not mean that you've partaken of me. And beloved, listen to me. This is the problem sinful man has with the knowledge of Scripture. I believe there are a lot of people who profess the doctrines of grace, that their assurance of salvation is based on their knowledge and understanding of election and not a partaking of Christ. I understand the doctrine of election. I believe God calls us. God's called me. And that's my assurance. My question is, have you partaken of Christ? Christ says it here. Except ye eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in you. Sinful man hasn't changed since the garden. Tree of life and the tree of knowledge. What did man choose in the state of perfection? The tree of knowledge. Not the tree of life. And today, even to this day, that's what Man strives to attain is the tree of knowledge. He believes there's power in knowledge. He believes there's salvation in knowledge. And I'm not saying that knowledge is not important. We must grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. But knowledge of itself, here in our text, Christ said knowledge of divine election is not enough. If that knowledge has not brought you to partake of me, you have to actually partake of Christ. I'm getting ahead of myself, but I mean the truth of it is sound in our text. Both these Jews and the disciples are religious professors. And look how, look how mad they are. The Jews strove amongst themselves. This is the first time you see that in Scripture. They murmured amongst themselves, but now this doctrine has caused them to strive amongst themselves. 
And what's happening today amongst the ranks of Calvinists, they strive amongst themselves concerning this doctrine. I'm telling you, this is what the truth of God does when man gets proudful and arrogant about his understanding of doctrines of our Christian faith. Something is terribly wrong. The disciples who followed him, and it does call them Christ's disciples, many of his disciples, they said, this is a hard saying, we can't, then they walk no more with him. So you see how Christ upsets the religious world here, the Jews and the disciples, over the doctrine of election and what it leads to. So, beloved, you can point out to me the five points of Calvinism. You can point out to me the divine doctrine of election, and you can give it to me point by point. My question will be to you as well as to myself, have I partaken of Christ? Not, can I define this blessed doctrine? And then when I see so many professing believers who embrace the doctrines of grace, struggle and strive over the doctrine of election as though it was some kind of ideology rather than a life, it bothers me. True Christ declares, except the Father draw a man, he cannot come to him. It is a divine and a sovereign act of the Father, not of any merit, but all of grace. Yes, Christ says that in the previous verses. Yet the Father's drawing will be evidenced in one's partaking of Christ. I think every Christian sometime in their life, as they grow in grace and knowledge of the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, wonder why Christians who profess to believe the same things cannot get along with one another. I believe John chapter 6 proves the reason why. It's not because of the truths of God. It's because of the sinfulness of man. His arrogance. Oh, dearly beloved, we can be the greatest saint if there is such a thing. And there's not. We can be the greatest saint of God. And still, knowledge will boast us to a level of pride and arrogancy which does not, does not please God. I believe this is why God put a thorn in Paul's flesh. I believe this is why God humbles us so often as he does to keep us humble, to keep us from the sin of pride. I never knew so much pridefulness amongst Christians, and don't misunderstand this statement, until I come to know the doctrines of grace and the people who embrace it. I'm telling you, brethren, it's something that you and I must be very careful of. We must pray that God would keep us humble. And as we stay close to God, I think we would have the same mind as Paul when he says, I'm the least of all saints. I'm the least of all apostles. I'm not worthy to be. I'm the chief of sinners. Oh, beloved, it is so, so very difficult for our flesh to stay humble, especially when it comes to the knowledge of God. And I am as guilty as the next when it comes to not keeping our hearts with all diligence and humbling ourselves before God. How do, we, how do we maintain that, preacher? How can we maintain a level of humility and not allow... 
I believe the answer is staying close to God, but also staying in fellowship with God, because if we're always reminded of the greatness and majesty and goodness of God, we'll never see nothing in ourselves or with any merit. It's all of God. What is man's chief end? To glorify God and enjoy Him forever. How do we enjoy Him forever? We glorify God. Except you eat the flesh of the Son of Man. Look at that. Except you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, ye have no life in you. It's an amazing statement after what he said about the Father drawing, and the Father giving, and the Father teaching. This divine truth caused no small contention between the Jews and even Christ's own disciples. For like I said, the Jews strove amongst themselves while many of Christ's own disciples complained that this is a hard saying. Who can hear it? We can't comprehend this. This is a hard saying. Beloved, these words of Christ was a direct offense and affront to everything they vainly believed about God and religion. It was a direct offense and affront to everything the Jews and these apostate disciples believed about God and religion. The brother was talking earlier about Joshua and standing up for truth and not being afraid of it and having courage. Christ purposely affronted them, offended them, because He said Himself later on, does this offend you? Nothing enrages sinful man more than when his false and corrupt opinions of religion are threatened by the truths of God. Nothing enrages sinful man more. Tell him his religion is false, and watch how he rises up in anger. How dare you judge my religion? There's something about false religion when it's exposed by the truth of God that enrages sinful man. That's why I'm getting ahead of myself, but that's why the gospel is such an offense to the sinner. It's an offense. It enrages him. That's why I like what Lloyd-Jones says, and it's a biblical truth. When he said, if you've ever heard the gospel for the first time, he said, the true gospel, the real gospel. He said, if you ever heard it the first time you heard it, you hated it, you despised it, you didn't like it because it told you everything about you that you didn't like, that you're unworthy, that you're ungodly, that you're vile, that you're a sinner, that you don't merit God's mercy. It offends you before it calls you. How does the Father teach us? By telling us all about the love of Christ? No, He teaches us that we're unworthy and we're not worthy of God's mercy and grace, that we're vile sinners, that your righteousness is all putrefied. Man doesn't embrace that when he first hears that. He abhors that. And religious men who want nothing to do with God, it enrages them even more. Preach the gospel, beloved. And sinful man will rise up and rage. Why did Cain kill Abel, the first blood spilt in the history of mankind? Because Abel's works were righteous and his were wicked. 
Remember when the Jews heard Stephen preaching? The Bible said they were cut to the heart. They didn't like it. Their hearts weren't broken. They were cut to the heart. There's a big difference. Just like yesterday, there's a difference between sorrow of heart and trouble of heart. Sorrow of heart is sacrifice to God. Trouble of heart is unbelief. Big difference. They were cut to the heart. What did they do to Stephen? Did they stand there and say, well, you're just not right? You said, well, they stoned him. Well, they did more than that. The Bible said they gnashed on him with their teeth. Can you imagine somebody doing that? Running up to you and start biting you with their teeth? That's how enraged they were at Stephen's preaching. The gospel enrages sinful man when he's religious. He despises it. He hates it. They gnashed on him with his teeth. In Hebrew, the book of Hebrews, Hebrews speaks of those who are had trial of cruel mocking, scourging, bonds, imprisonment, stone, sawn asunder, slain with the sword, destitute, afflicted, tormented. Why? Because they lived good moral lives? No, because they preached the gospel? Nothing enrages sinful man more, especially when he has religion, than the truth of God. And beloved, in this day and age, with the way this world is right now, the way they're against Christianity now, they always have been, but it's even more now. Try standing up in the corners of Coleman and preaching the gospel and watch how people get enraged. Try telling other people who's, who's believing a false doctrine that the religion is vain and they, they believe the lie. They'll hate you. They'll persecute you. They'll call you all sorts of things. You're a man full of hatred. You're a man full of, you criticize, you judge, and you shouldn't do that. And there's nothing more terrible, there's nothing more bad and sinful than a man who, sinful man who has religion, a false religion. When he's confronted, confronted with the truths of God, they hate it and they despise it. Look at Christ. Look at what they did to him. Isaiah said when people looked upon him, they didn't even notice or realize him to be man but just a hunk of flesh after they cruelly mocked him and beaten him and scourged him and spit in his face. That was the Son of God. And then they shamefully held, nailed him on a cross naked before the world. The Son of God. Now, whenever the Gospels preached, and we see this in John chapter 6, we're going to enrage the hatred of sinful man who despises and rejects God. The gospel of Christ is greatly offensive to the sinful man and incites his greatest hatred and enrages him like nothing else. You understand now why it takes a sovereign work of God to draw men to Christ? Listen to me. Why do you why this is the amazing thing and consider it in your own salvation. Why do you think there's such a blessing in those words, except the Father draw you? Why? If the Father doesn't draw us, we are so in sin. We're so depraved. We're so engulfed in sin and darkness and ignorance. If Father did not draw us, we would never come to Christ. We would never come to Christ. Yet when the Father draws, He draws effectively. What do you mean by that? He draws us to partake of Christ. It's not an intellectual ascent, but it's effectual. 
Verse 54 to 58 again. Whoso eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood hath eternal life. Look at that. Hath it, and I will raise him up at the last day. Isn't it amazing he says that quite often? I'll raise him up on the last day. I'll raise him up on the last day. I'm going to finish it. I'm going to, that's, that's eternal security of the believer. I'll raise him up. I'll raise him up. I'll raise him up. And the last, it's an amazing comfort. For my flesh is meat indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. Oh, listen to the words of our Savior. He that eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood, watch this, dwelleth in me and I in him. There's that mystical union. He dwelleth in me and I in him, dwelling with Christ, living with Christ, knowing Christ in an intimate, personal way. Watch this. What's the illustration he used in verse 57? As the living Father. I, I like how he used it. He didn't say as the Father, but as the living Father hath sent me, and I live by the Father. So he that eateth me, even he shall live by me. This is that bread which came down from heaven. Not as your fathers did eat manna and are dead. He that eateth of this bread shall live for ever. You see the difference? That union with Christ, living with Christ, as the Father lives in Him. Beloved, like I said, there are many who rest in an intellectual ascent in the knowledge of divine election, as though their knowledge of such doctrine secures their eternal life. Have you not often wondered why people who profess to know the doctrines of our Christian faith, how their life contradicts the doctrine they proclaim to profess? Have you ever wondered that? In the last 40 years, I have seen and heard many men speak well of the doctrines of grace, defend them wonderfully, excellency. Yet many of them today, I can tell you, are not even partaking in a church. They're not even living the Christian life. They, like the apostate disciples, have walked away and walked no more with Christ. You say, how is such a thing possible? Oh, you can have an intellectual assent to the doctrines of grace and still never partake of Christ. It's not what we know. It's who we know. It's partaking of Christ. We think everyone that professes the doctrines of grace are surely saved. Knowledge does not save you of itself. This is what Christ is declaring in John chapter 6. Except you eat my flesh. Wait a minute. We can be comfortable in Father drawing us. You can say that all you want to. He taught us. We believe in election. I'm one of the I'm one of the elected. How do you know? Well, because God elects, and I just I know about the doctrine of election, and therefore I must be saved because I understand it. And Christ says, No, that's not sufficient. If you, the, the, the drawing of the Father does not lead you to effectually partake of me, you know nothing of his drawing. You know nothing of election. Him of the Jews, they answered and said unto Christ, Abraham's our father. Jesus said unto them, If ye be Abraham's children, you would do the works of Abraham. Remember that? I like how he said that. If you're Abraham's children, you would do the works. Christ is saying the same thing here. If the Father's drawn you, you partake of me. If you don't, you have no life in you. Don't you love those words here in 56 to 57? Dwelleth in me and I in him. 
even he shall live by me. Don't you love that? As a Christian, dwelleth in me, dwelleth in me, and I in him. Do you know anything about the mystical union of Christ and yourself? Do you know anything about Christ living in you? Do you know anything of that life that's within you? If not, I've got to ask you, what good is your knowledge doing? What good is all the knowledge and books you read if you know nothing of Christ? When it comes to the point of life where we face that last enemy called death, beloved, all our knowledge of God will mean nothing if we know not Christ. It will give you no comfort, just like it does it now. Why do you think these people that have just merely knowledge and no real union with Christ, their lives are so contrary to what they believe in? They get, they get more than just angry and upset. All Christians sin. I'm not saying we don't sin, but their life is miserable. They have no peace and comfort. They have no joy. Why do you think they strive and contend with men all the time about their knowledge? And, oh, don't question their knowledge. Don't question their knowledge. If Christ is dwelling in us, in all our knowledge, and I'm not saying that we don't ourselves deal with the sin of pride and arrogance and what we know. Every one of us are weak. We all have our mistakes. But I'm telling you, if it does, we are humbled by our sinfulness and our pride and we fall down before God. But I've known many that profess the doctrines of grace and it seems like their life is just in the continual contention with others. It never makes sense to me. We contend for the faith, but we're not contentious. Do you know about Christ dwelling in you? Do you know of Christ dwelling in you? Dwelleth in me and I in him. Let me ask you a question. How can someone not know Christ is dwelling in them? We're going to look at that in a minute. Paul says that. Examine yourselves. Know you not that Christ is in you, lest you be reprobates? How could you not know if Christ lives in you, if you're saved? You must know when the Son of God, in the person of the Holy Spirit, comes into our souls. Romans 8 says we cry, Abba, Father. There's a union there with Christ and with God. Something miraculously has happened and we now know Christ is in me and I in Him. And though that experience is often hampered and hindered and darkened by our sin and our failures and our weaknesses, even then in the darkness of our failures, we know the life of Christ is in us and we in Him. Why? Because of faith. Oh, this is the miraculous, miraculous and wonderful working of God's faith, which is a gift of God. That even in the darkest hours when we feel the weight of our infirmities and, and, and weaknesses and even sins, Christ is still our Savior. Why do you think Christ on the cross, when in the midst of when all that sin the Father laid upon Him and He was bearing our sins, He could say, My God, My God, why hast Thou forsaken Me? He acknowledged Him still as His God and we might sin, but it's against our God. Not be God. Why? Because Christ is in us. It's a life, dearly beloved. It's a life 
Paul said it best. In Galatians, he said, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. Beloved, what I'm trying to tell you is if the Son of God and the person of the Holy Spirit has come and dwell in us, if we've partaken of Christ, if we've ate of His flesh, spiritually speaking, and drank of His blood, and Christ dwells in us, beloved, this is the Son of God, the Creator of all the universe. This is God who dwells in us. It's, a miraculous, it's, it's more miraculous than Him coming down here and being born in the flesh. Nicodemus, you must be born again. You must be born again. Born from above. <laughs> Christ in you, Paul said, the hope of glory. Our hope of glory is not knowledge of Scripture and heaven and election. It's Christ in me. That's the hope of glory. Christ in me. Christ, Christ is in me. That's my hope of glory. And the life which I now live in the flesh, Paul says, I live by the faith of the Son of God. It's not even my own faith, Paul says. It's the faith of the Son of God. What a reality who loved me and gave himself for me. I'm telling you, listen to the intimacy of that verse. Beloved, when's the last time that we honestly, seriously, and humbly spent time alone with Christ? I know it's an old gospel hymn. And he walks with me and he talks with me and he tells me I am his own. And the joy we share. Do you have such an intimate relationship with Christ? Do you know Christ? I didn't say, do you know of him? Do you know Christ? In Christ's salvation, he's come to give us a knowledge that we might know him who is the true God. Why would he leave you and I in ignorance? Why would you sit there and say, well, I hope I know Christ, or I hope Christ is in me? Believe me, if Christ is in you, <laughs> it's a reality that you cannot miss. In John chapter 17, that high priestly prayer, John chapter 17, stay with me a few minutes, John chapter 17 in verse 20. Christ praying to the Father, neither pray I for these alone, but for them which also shall believe on me through their word. Watch this, listen to this, this is amazing that they all may be one as thou, Father, art in me and I in thee, that they also may be one, one in us. Listen to that. He's talking to the Father. That they may be one in us, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. All that cometh in me, the Father draws them. The Father who sent me, same wording, isn't it? That they have sent me, that, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. How do they believe that Christ was sent? The unity and oneness of not only the believers, but the unity and oneness of the believers with God the Father and God the Son were one in God and in Christ. What an amazing reality. 
or is that merely a doctrinal thesis? Verse 22, And the glory which thou gavest me, I have given them. Listen, we could, we could park here for a long time and never come to the end of that. Listen to what he, and the glory which thou gavest me, the glory which Father gave Christ, he's given unto us. Can you tell me you, you can have that glory and not know it? He's got to know it. Why the glory? What's that glory have to do with? Look, he tells you what that glory has to do with, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and thou in me, and they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that thou hast sent me, and hast, I love this, and hast loved them as thou hast loved me. In Christ the Father loves us as he loves the Son. Can that be hidden? Can that be unknown? Of course not. And the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. Oh, let me tell you something, beloved. When we've been partaken of Christ, when the Father has drawn us and taught us, and we come to Christ by His grace, by His faith that He's given us, and we partake of Christ, He dwells in us and we dwell in Him, and it's a reality, and that's salvation in His purest form. Colossians 1.25, chapter 1, verse 25. Colossians chapter 1, verse 25. Listen again, Paul speaks it well. Colossians chapter 1, verse 25. Whereof I am made a minister according to the disposition, according to the dispensation of God which is given to me for you to feel the word of God. Watch this. Even the mystery which hath been hid from ages and from generation. It was hid, but now is made manifest to his saints. What mystery is that? To whom God would make known what is the riches of his glory, of this mystery among the Gentiles. What is that mystery? Which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. That was the mystery. It was hidden and is now revealed. Christ in you, the hope of glory. What a salvation. What a glorious salvation has Christ wrought for us. What a glorious salvation the Father has taught us. What amazing drawing of the Father to bring us to Christ so that we might partake of Christ, that He might dwell in us and we in Him, and that we might be one with Him and the Father. What a mystical union. What a glorious life. Therefore, Paul says, examine yourselves. Know ye not that Christ is in you, lest ye be reprobates. Examine yourselves. Why does Paul say that? Because Paul says you've got to be sure. You've got to know that Christ is in you. If you don't know that, you're a reprobate. Know ye not that Christ is in you, lest ye be reprobates. Examine yourselves. Go back to John chapter 6 and let me wind this down. Verse 63. It all comes to this. It is the spirit that quickeneth. There it is. The flesh profiteth nothing. That's what he's telling them. You need the spirit. Spirit quickeneth. The flesh profiteth nothing. The words that I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life. But there are some of you that believe not, for Jesus knew from the beginning who they were that believed not and who should betray him. Like I said in the beginning, Christ isn't wasting his words on the, on the Jews nor on the apostate disciples. He's speaking these words to us. 
He's speaking these words to his sheep. He's speaking these words to those whom the Father has drawn. He's not wasting his breath on the Jew. I knew you'd not believe in me, and I know who'd betray me. And he said, there, and he said, therefore said I unto you, and he closes, that no man can come unto me except we're given. He brings it down to what? You can't come unto me unless the Father draws you, gives you. Now watch what happens. This is how sinful man receives such wonderful blessing. From that time, many of the disciples went back, walked no more with him. Rejected him. You don't think the truth divides? It sure does. Then said Jesus in the twelve, will you also go away? He's going to ask these ones, these guys. He didn't. They, he turns around. And, and again, like I said before, you got to remember in this sixth chapter, not just the 5,000, but the women and the children, the Jews, the apostate disciples. There had to be close to 10,000 people, close to 10,000, if not more, 10,000 people in chapter 6 in the beginning of it, close to 10,000. By the time chapter 6 is over with, there's only 12, and one of them is the devil. You don't tell me God's truth divides? It sure does. Then said Jesus unto the twelve, Will you also go away? Then Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? I wish I had time to get further into this. Maybe one day we'll be conditioned to have three and four hour sermons. <laughs> but he said, Lord, to whom shall we go? Throughout this whole discourse, the apostles have said nothing. Were they mesmerized? Were they amazed? Don't forget, before he came to feed the 5,000, he took them out on the sea and he walked on the water and it was the first time they worshipped him and it was the first time they said, truly thou art the Son of God. Uh, they were still memorized from memorized, me memorized? I'm getting the word out there. From that miracle. And now they're watching him as he answers the multitude, turns to the Jews and they're listening eat my flesh and draw my blood. Oh, the Spirit. He said the Spirit and their life. The words, their Spirit and their life and they're listening and they're taking it all in and the Jews are striving amongst one another. The, the apostate disciples are arguing and complaining and, and these 12, 11 at least, are standing there memorized that Christ is saying and taking it all in and finally when the Lord turns to them, Peter says, where shall we go? We don't want to go anywhere but here. Why? Listen to this. Lord, to whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life. Didn't he just say in verse 63, the words that I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life. Peter's confessing what Christ just said. Where shall we go? You have the words of life, of eternal life. And we believe and are sure that thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered them, Have not I chosen you? He proves his point about the drawing and partaking. Christ doesn't allow Peter to take the merit. He says, <laughs> he says, Jesus answered them, Have not I chosen you twelve? And one of you is a devil. He proves the point. This is You eleven are my point. You twelve are my point. Father draws, partakes. One of you is a devil. He spake of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon. For he it was that should betray him, being one of the twelve. You know, in, for a final thought, isn't it amazing that through all of this, listen to me, this is very humbling, but I think we need to realize this. Out of all of this, the thousands of the Jews, the apostate disciples, 
There's a devil that doesn't move. And he stays in the midst of the twelve, hidden to all but Christ. That's an amazing thought if you think about it. And I agree with many of our forefathers. I agree that simply means out of every twelve true disciples, there's a devil, there's a Judas. He didn't budge, he didn't move, he didn't expose himself. The disciples didn't even know who he was. Christ knew. Oh, beloved, there'll always be tares amongst the wheat, goats amongst the sheep, five foolish virgins. They're amongst God's people. And you know another terrifying thought? They know who they are. They know themselves who they are. They have nothing and no interest in Christ, but because of their pride and arrogancy, of their knowledge, they'll not budge until Christ comes back and separates the tares from the wheat. So, beloved, we'll always have a Judas in the midst. As a matter of fact, and I mean this sincerely, if you're a true believer, there's probably some time in your Christian life you questioned whether you were a Judas. Ah. It might not be a bad idea for some professing believers. Examine yourself. Are you a Judas? Do you truly have an interest in Christ? Or is your interest all full of pride and arrogance, selfish, self-motivated? Or do you know Christ? Examine yourselves whether you be in Christ. Know you not that Christ is in you, lest you be reprobates. Amazing truths here, beloved, about salvation. The Father has drawn us. He's taught us that we might partake of Christ. Do you know Christ? Do you know Christ? Does he dwell in you? Do you dwell in him? Oh, what a wonderful life it is. Will you also go away? Where shall we go? You have the words of, the, of eternal life. And we believe and are sure that thou art the Son of God. Comfort in the midst of all this confusion. Praise God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, dear God, for your word. We thank you, Lord God, how it exposes down to the very depths of our hearts the level of depravity and hypocrisy and sin. Oh, Father, like the psalmist says in Psalms, search me, O God, and know my heart. That's the prayer of a true believer. We wish not to hide any sin, any sinful thought, anything, dear God, that would offend you because Christ dwells in us. First John said, because the seed dwelleth in them, they cannot sin. It's not sinless perfection, but Lord, it's the grieving of the Holy Spirit because he dwells in us. When we sin, dear God, we fall before you and we can say, blessed is the man whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. What a blessed state to be in. Dear God, we thank you for drawing us, for teaching us. Christ, we thank you for allowing us by your grace to partake of you that you dwell in us and we in you. What a blessing it is. Dear God, I pray that this would encourage us in this world which is so hectic and chaotic. No matter what goes on, Christ liveth in us and we live in Christ. Oh, dear God, there's none in heaven that I desire, none upon earth, Lord God, except Thee. We pray that You'd be honored and glorified in all we say and do. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.